You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. My guest today is the Honorable James E. Baker, who is a professor at the Syracuse University College of Law. But before he did that, he did some amazing things here in Washington, basically every important job you could possibly have inside the Beltway, from being on the staff of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, to working on the National Security Council, to ultimately becoming the chief judge for the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. So we're glad to have you tonight, Jamie. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Elisa. I would like to say it's a pleasure to be here, but it's never a pleasure to come in to talk about war crimes. (laughs) That's what we're going to do, because we met and spoke about this about four months ago, and we talked about whether or not the International Criminal Court, which is formed under something called the Rome Statute, would actually go ahead and charge Putin for war crimes. And in fact, they did. They have charged him under Articles 82A7, 82B8 of the Rome Statute, which look very much like conspiracy type of offenses, a U.S. type of inchoate offenses. First, for having jointly with apparently this woman who is ironically named Children's Rights Office of the President in Russia. They've both been charged for two crimes jointly under those statutes that I mentioned. His first for having committed the acts directly and jointly with others or through others, and second for his failure to exercise control properly over civilian and military subordinates who committed these acts. Now, when I spoke to you last time, you talked very much about what was happening to children, the kidnapping of children, and you specifically cited the fact that commanders-in-chief And persons over military personnel have themselves certain legal obligations under international law. So I just want to find out how you reacted to this development. That uh, And did you expect it? I would be less than fully honest if I said I expected it at that moment. I certainly expected Putin to be charged with war crimes. Did I expect him to have a arrest warrant essentially unsealed on March 17th? No but I'm not at all surprised by it. Here are a couple things to think about with it. It's pretty clear, at least in the moment, that Putin will not fall into the custody of the ICC. And so that leads some people to conclude, is this something more than just symbolism? Well, first of all, let's not discount symbolic acts. It's enormously important for the people of Ukraine that the world is bearing witness to their suffering and observing Russia's war of aggression. And so this is recognition of that in a legal instrument. I think a couple of things we might note about this. This is also a manifestation that this war of aggression against Ukraine is a war about territory, but it's also a war about values. The most important value being the value of law as a guarantor of human dignity. And we now know from the ICC that this is not a U.S. view, this is not a NATO view, this is not a Ukrainian view, this is a global view, that this is a war over legal values and human dignity. The Chinas and the Irans of the world can no longer pretend that they're not dealing with a war criminal. It's manifest that they are to anybody who has their eyes open, but now the ICC has indicated so as well as a matter of law, 
And it's very hard now for them to look the other way. And it's very hard, in my view, for a country like India to sit on the sideline. India has to answer the question, are they on the side of war criminals or are they on the side of children? That's what's presented here. A lot of countries are not signatories to the Rome Statute, really are not sort of member nations, if you will, for the ICC, meaning they have not made themselves subject to the ICC. We are among those nations, but another one is Russia. I guess the question becomes, what happens next? And what is the obligation of the member states with respect to, say, having a wanted person with a warrant issued by the ICC pass into their physical jurisdiction? Do they have obligations? Would they have to turn him over? Good question. Complicated answer, perhaps. So the signatories, the parties to the Rome Statute, all 123 state parties, would have an obligation to surrender a person who has arrest warrant uh, out for them from the ICC to the ICC. Whether they would do so or not is a different question. And we know from the case of the former president of Sudan, Bashir, uh, that certain states who are parties to the treaty declined to do so, citing what some would view as fraudulent claims of head of state immunity and so on. The Rome Statute actually states expressly that there is no head of state immunity with respect to the ICC's charges. So in theory, and hopefully in practice, if a person who was wanted by the ICC came within the jurisdiction of a member state, they would have an obligation to arrest the person and send them to the ICC. One thing that's important to note here, so we say, well, Vladimir Putin, he's not going to show up in England or in the UK next week and run the risk of getting arrested. And what Bashir apparently did was contact countries ahead of time to decide to determine whether he'd get arrested or not before he went to those countries. And I'm sure if Putin is inclined to travel overseas someplace other than China, he would do that sort of preparation as well. However, remember what the ICC indicated They apparently in the arrest warrant have charged Putin and his accomplice, but they charge Putin as well. And this is very important under the doctrine of command responsibility and superior responsibility. And and as we talked about last time, Elisa, this is such an important part of the law of armed conflict and such an important part of a commander's responsibility to make sure that those under his or her command follow the law. It's clear the ICC is going to enforce a doctrine of command responsibility because it is the law, and they're going to enforce it against that means not just Putin, but everybody else in that chain of command. So we can't underestimate the fact that this could have deterrent effect, not because Putin's going to be deterred from committing war crimes. He's he's all in on that. But the people who are committing those crimes on his behalf may be deterred. And they may travel to the UK or they may travel to a country and find that there's also arrest warrant out for them and they did not know about it. So we may see this play out in a way that we don't fully anticipate, not just with Putin and the other alleged defendant, Mrs. Lavova Belova, but there are others, no doubt. And by the way, I would commend to the audience the excellent report from February 14th prepared by the Yale School of Public Health Humanitarian Research Lab. 
And inside that report, they go through the Russian program of deportation of children, of re-education of children, and so on. Included in that report is a diagram of who might be responsible between Putin and the people who actually implement these awful, unlawful policies. You know, one of the things that I've wondered is, you know, he's used a private militia, apparently allegedly staffed by inmates, criminals and the like, the Wagner militia. There is a question about who's actually on the ground, whether it's the official Russian military in all places and whether it's something else entirely, some sort of private militia. Do you see any sort of a built in defense or strategy in doing this in order to sort of muddy the waters and create some sort of plausible deniability? It seems like it would be hard to do, given that he and Ms. Lavova Balova, some of their meetings have been broadcast on Russian television for the whole world to see. Well, and indeed, Russia itself announced on January 23rd that the number is wrong. We are not talking about 6,000 children as reported in the Yale Public Health Report, which they said was likely a deep underestimation. Russia itself announced on January 23rd, as reported by that report, that 728,000 children had been taken into Russia from Ukraine, not 6,000. And the U.S. estimate from October is 260,000 children. We know from Ambassador Thomas Greenfield at the U.N., she indicated that likely 900,000 to 1.6 million Ukrainians had been forcibly deported and transferred into Russia. There are a lot of different numbers. The Yale report number 6,000 by its own acknowledgement is an underestimate. To be clear, they said that perhaps there are some people who might in fact have voluntarily gone into Russia, but there's clearly an enormous number. And we need only look to history that this is something the czars did. This is something the Soviet Union did. And it's now something Putin has done, which is deport persons from Eastern Europe to generally Siberia, but what's meant by that is just the west of Russia. And this is a pattern that we've seen repeated in Poland, historically by the czars and then the Soviet Union, and of course, always in Ukraine. I'm not sure if that was responsive to your question. I think it was. I guess, you know, listening to that, some people might wonder, like, what's in it for Russia? What do they get out of doing this kind of thing? One wonders, right? One wonders what the virtue of war crimes are. It does lead one to believe that there is an effort to eradicate Ukrainian identity. I know that the United States government has said there's been crimes against humanity in Ukraine. I think it's pretty clear that we're seeing attempted acts of genocide and acts of genocide as well, an effort to eradicate the Ukrainian identity. So I think perhaps from a Russian perspective, what do they get out of it? They eradicate Ukrainian identity, and there's no better place to try and do that than with children. To the life of me, though, we know going back to George Washington and professional military commanders in history, that the difference between an armed mob and a professional military is adherence to law and obedience to orders. So Russia's penchant for committing every war crime is not helpful. It's not professional. It doesn't help them win, but it may help them try to eradicate Ukrainian identity. So maybe that's what they think they're getting out of it. 
It's appalling, and in my view, it sure looks like genocide, whether the attempted genocide, if the evidence is there, this is what it looks like. And that would be consistent with their policies toward Ukraine during Stalin and the Russification of the region, which included the same kind of activity and also included literally starving at times the population. So I would say this sort of coincides also with another thing, which is that Russia depends on this very large company, which is basically the company that's responsible for turning Ukraine into the breadbasket, if you will, for Europe. And they have attacked and desecrated the headquarters and the major grain storage facility of that company, sort of coinciding with this horrible other behavior. Now, just based on history, because I know you're also a student of history, what does this kind of thing do in terms of ever negotiating the peaceful end of any conflict? Because no one wants to sit down with a loathsome war criminal who dispatches, you know, these marauding, rapacious, kidnapping mobs. Now you may have to, in order to stop the bloodshed, sit down and work something out. How does history say this plays out? Fair point. And it's something, you know, commentators have noted, historians have noted, it is always harder to negotiate a peaceful resolution to conflict with someone who is a war criminal or who who you have designated as a war criminal. It certainly complicates the matter. And one has to be concerned or wonder whether as part of any negotiated end to this war of aggression, the Russians and Putin will demand some sort of revocation of the arrest warrant. I think that's unlikely. I don't think the ICC will be taking its direction from the government of Russia. I do think that this happens to be the arrest warrant that has been unsealed, partly because they're seeking to deter further deportation of children. But it's not the only arrest warrant. I don't know that as a fact. I wouldn't know that. But it's hard to imagine in this conflict that that's the only arrest warrant. So far, it's the only arrest warrant for Putin that we've seen unsealed. So it does make it harder. It does make it more complicated. But the arrest warrant doesn't change the dynamic that Putin had already launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. That made it hard enough to reach a peaceful resolution. So I think the incremental change the incremental difficulty now is not much greater than it was before. It's hard to negotiate a settlement with anybody who has committed war crimes on the scale of Bucha, Izium, and crime after crime after crime. And that that didn't change on March 17th. All right. Well, any parting thoughts on this new development? We'll certainly watch it. And uh, obviously, you've now raised the specter of the possibility of multiple other warrants, which it would be hard to imagine don't exist, given what's been happening in Ukraine. I would like to close as I've closed before with you, but it's very important to remember this. These are the words of Elie Wiesel referring to the Holocaust. He said, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must not be a time when we fail to protest. The events in Ukraine have been seen. They've been heard. The ICC has recognized them. The world sees them and recognizes them. And the people of Ukraine should know that. All right. Well, it's been great to talk to you tonight. And we're going to hyperlink my previous conversation with you in the notes to this cast. And let's hope that there is some resolution to this. It would be lovely if it involved returning some of these kids, if not all of them. 
All right, listeners, we also know that you're interested in the 702 reauthorization. And because we know that you're interested in FISA, we're inviting you to come to a discussion with the General Counsel of the National Security Agency. You can join us at noon on April 17th, 2023 at the Army-Navy Club. You can find a link to register for this event in the notes to our podcast. We hope to see you then. And thank you for listening to National Security Law today. Be sure to share this episode with a friend and discuss it in a civil tone with big thoughts. Certainly stay off of TikTok. You heard that here. <laughs> All right. Our writer and producer is me, Elisa Fotin, always here in my individual capacity. Our editor is Francis Burkham. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other producer is Holly McMahon and all the wonderful members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.